That was a great singing of not all of Psalm 25, that would be 22 verses, but the first seven verses of Psalm 25. If you would, take out your Bibles and indeed turn with me now to Psalm chapter 25. We're in the, toward the end of this installment of our summer sermon series, seeing all of life as worship through the Psalms. I want to begin not with prayer, but just with some comments, and uh, when we read Psalm 25, we will ask God to give us um, eyes to see and ears to hear His truth. Psalm 25 is one of the nine alphabetic or acrostic psalms in the Psalter, because you see in its original language in Hebrew, each verse begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet in order except for some slight irregularity. Now, this acrostic pattern, this alphabet pattern, provides somewhat of an artificial scheme, and it makes um, a clear development of the flow of thought difficult. Uh, However, most scholars, most theologians, most commentators, most readers of uh, Psalm 25 can see kind of three themes emerge. Uh, Forgiveness, guidance, and protection are woven together throughout Psalm 25. One commentator says this, the tone is subdued and the singer's trust is shown in patient waiting rather than the outburst of joy that sometimes marks the climax of such a psalm. And we will indeed see that. James Montgomery Boyce, uh, the late pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, whose widow gave us those hymn books, Hymns for a Modern Reformation, says this, Psalm 25 is great, but it is great in its calm and quiet maturity, not as some deep or powerful cry of anguish. It is a thoughtful prayer by one who knows that the only adequate foundation for any worthwhile life is God. In Psalm 25, we will see the pressure of enemies the need of guidance, and a burden of guilt that are dominant concerns. Now earlier I mentioned that it's a a, a broken, it's an acrostic with some irregularities. It's a broken acrostic. Two letters are missing and the last verse, verse 22, is outside this scheme of alphabetical order altogether. One commentator says this, this brokenness reflects the way troubles break the pattern of life itself. And indeed, I think that's a wise observation. It has indeed got several themes, but I think what we're going to focus on today is guidance. Now, let me ask a question as we begin. Do you find it easy or hard to ask for directions? You know, when you're driving, are you, you've seen the scene, right, of somebody willing to ask for directions and somebody unwilling to ask for directions, right? And either that means you're going to get to where you want to go sooner or later or maybe not at all. Well, how about not just driving, but assembling a new appliance? How many of you all get it out of the box and just start putting it together, right? Oh, the instructions, I mean, you you see that with Christmas gifts, right? Yes, we've all been there. 
either on the giving end or receiving end, of things attempted to be put together without paying attention to the directions, to the instructions. How about filling out a form? Around early April, mid-April, you know, we're filling out forms, and then there's guidance, there's instructions to fill out the forms. Do you use them? Would you rather find your way on your own and do it yourself without any assistance or help at all? Think with me for a moment about a recent tool that most folks either directly use or all of us indirectly use. GPS, the global positioning system, that collection of satellites that helps us navigate to know where we are on earth. Think with me of all the smartphone map apps right at our fingertips. Do you use them? Do you trust them? Do you do what they tell you to do? Do do you follow the instruction or are you still, no, I don't need that. I can find my way. Psalm 25 at its heart, I believe, addresses the issue of our need for guidance and directions in life. Now, in thinking about Psalm 25 this past week, uh, I kept going back to a familiar proverb that many of us have memorized. And if you're like me, in the middle of the night when you wake up and you can't sleep, my mind goes to this passage. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. As I studied Psalm 25, I thought, wow, this is like an extended commentary on Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Psalm 25, as we will see, is diverse. It is not just the ABCs, it is the A to Z, but at its core is a request to be taught the ways of the Lord, the paths of the Lord. Indeed, the editorial title of Psalm 25 in many Bible translations is this, teach me your paths. In other words, it's a request for guidance for life from the Lord. I believe there are some ABCs to God's guidance that we need to learn, and Psalm 25 gives them to us. Join with me as I read Psalm 25. Of David, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. 
For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for not leaving us alone, but giving us guidance. Indeed, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We pray that your Holy Spirit would now be present to give us understanding of your word and a growing ability and desire to put your word into practice. Father, open our ears to hear, open our eyes to see, our minds to know, our hearts to embrace, and would you be pleased to strengthen our hands and feet to work out the truth that is before us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the ABCs of God's guidance are really the L-R-O. Look to the Lord, receive his teaching, and obey his word. Remember what you do with GPS, you turn it on, you listen to it, and you follow its directions. Let's look first at the attitude, a posture. Our eyes are open, we look to the Lord. This first ABC of God's guidance is look to the Lord. Um, Sometimes what goes without saying needs to be said. Most people want guidance. They want direction. And I'm speaking of Christians. I I want to know the Lord's will. I I want to obey Him. I want to follow Him. I want to do what pleases Him. I mean, that is the heart's cry of most anyone who claims the name of Christ. I want to follow. But interestingly, they don't look to the Lord. Right off the bat, the ABC we see in Psalm 25 in the first couple of verses To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. I lift up my soul. In other words, I direct my desire. This opening of the psalm, David is looking to the Lord. He's expressing his confidence in the Lord. For those of you with with us last week, uh, look at Psalm 24, verse 4. Well, let's begin with verse 3 of Psalm 24. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false. Here's David saying, I'm not going to lift my soul up to something or someone that is false. I'm going to lift it up to the Lord, to the one who is true. 
Look down with me at verse 16. Turn to me and be gracious to me. David, in saying, turn to me, be gracious to me, he's looking to the Lord. He's got his eyes on the Lord. Now, why look to the Lord? Why would David look to the Lord? Reason number one, there's danger and trouble. There are enemies on the outside. Verse two, he speaks of my enemies. Verse 19, consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. David says in verse 20, Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame for I take refuge in you. David is in a battle. There are enemies on the outside around him. And look at his request again. Oh, my God, verse 2, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Verse 3, indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. Well, we need to uh, say something about shame. Shame. Um, that word sometimes is not well understood, but here, biblically, the idea is that of being let down or disappointed or having trusted in something that in the end proves unworthy of your trust. To be ashamed would be to, to be publicly shown to have relied on a false basis for hope. David does not want himself to be put to shame. He does not want at the end of the day to be shown that his trust was in vain. His confidence was not in where it should be. Oh Lord, protect me. And indeed, he has confidence not only that he will be protected from shame, but the shame will indeed fall on those who oppose him and indeed oppose the Lord. Well, what's another reason? Why look to the Lord? Well, there's danger on the outside but there's also danger and trouble on the inside. There are enemies within the citadel, enemies inside the fort, enemies on the inside are sin. Look at verse 17 again. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. The troubles of my heart. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Verse 7. Remember not the sins of my youth, or my transgression. Verse 18, consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. David is conscious not only of trouble and, and danger from the outside, he's well aware of trouble and danger on the inside through sin. And we'll talk more about that shortly. What's another reason of looking to the Lord? Well, a more fundamental basic reason even before the presence of trouble, is the fact that we are human. One of my professors in seminary, Paul Tripp, said something fascinating in a lecture once. He said this, he said, did you notice that before the fall, before the fall of man into sin, before everything gets turned upside down, we read in Genesis 3, before that, man was dependent upon the word of God. God had to speak to man. He had to speak. Man is a creature. He need he she needs instruction, needs counsel. Even before the fall, there is a need to look to the Lord and we see that unbroken look in the early chapters of Genesis before the fall. What's another reason to look to the Lord? 
Well, that God himself is good and upright. God's character invites us to look. Good and upright is the Lord, we read in verse 8. In many ways, God as he is described, the Lord as he's described in these words of David here in Psalm 25, really are a further commentary on Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. And some people cannot believe that this is in the Old Testament, but hear these words from Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him, that is Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin but who will by no means clear the guilty. God is merciful and gracious. He's good, but he's also upright. In Leviticus, as in many other places, Leviticus 11, I am holy. I am holy. Peter picks it up, be holy. Because God himself says, I am holy, be holy. So how do we look to the Lord? How? Do we look to the Lord? First and foremost, well, first in this order, through God's word. We look to the Lord through his word and more about that in a moment. How else do we look to the Lord? Through prayer. David's words are a prayer. The Psalms, the Psalter, 150 prayers and songs of Israel to the Lord. It's the hymn book of the church. It's a prayer. We look to the Lord through His Word as He speaks to us. We look through to the Lord through prayer as we speak to Him. Now when, at what time of the day, what day of the week do we do this? For how long? Look at the beginning, toward the beginning, verse 5. For you I wait all the day long. I look. I have an eager expectation. I wait. I look all day. The day long. Toward the end, verse 21, for I wait for you. For I wait for you. Are you right now looking to the Lord for guidance, for direction? Are you looking, as it were, horizontally to what society, our culture says? Are you looking, interestingly, curved inward with your own thoughts and ideas? Or are you looking up? Are you looking to the Lord? And are you doing that all the time? Is it like breathing? Or is it on Sunday from 11 to 12.25? Is it every day? Is it all the day long? Now one more comment about looking to the Lord to receive guidance or to get help. Look with me at verse 15. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for He will pluck my feet out of the net. Interesting, isn't it? When our eyes are on the Lord, they cannot be on our ability to fix things. Someone recently reminded me of a passage in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that in the presence of temptation, what will God do? He will provide a way of escape 
so that you can endure and stand up under the temptation, right? It's not that you will find the way of escape, but he will provide the way of escape. Verse 15, my eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. I mean, just envision that. The net, the fishing net has somehow got, you've gotten tangled into it. And the temptation and the tendency and the automatic default response is, I'm going to look down and untie this net that's wrapped around me. But David is giving a picture, to be sure it's a, a picture, of no, he's looking to the Lord. His eyes are on the Lord and, and God will deliver him out of that net. The psalmist looks to the Lord for guidance and the Lord provides guidance through instruction and teaching. And so the psalmist knows not only does he need to look to the Lord, he needs to listen to the Lord, to, to speak, to speak. Um, as I was thinking about looking to the Lord and, and, and listening to the Lord, I, I think back into the 1970s when my sister was a cheerleader, a high school cheerleader, and there was a cheer that said, stop, look, and listen, here come the mighty Bearcats. Believe it or not, my high school was the Bearcats. It was kind of neat to come to Cincinnati. Stop, look, and listen. Here come the mighty Bearcats. Well, this cheer is stop, look to the Lord, and listen to the Lord. Receive his teaching. Acknowledge his authority. Open his ears. Um, God teaches us about himself in this psalm. He, he makes known his character. Throughout Psalm 25, we see that God is good he, he loves steadfastly. He is faithful. You can quote Exodus 34 again. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God teaches us about himself, but he also teaches us about ourselves. He makes known our sin and need. Notice how David speaks of sins of the past. Don't remember the sins of my youth, he says, but remember me. Remember your covenant faithfulness. Remember your promise. But he also speaks of sins in the present. Look at verse 11. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. David is not only aware of past sins, He's aware of present sins and he's looking to the Lord and he directs his attention to the Lord and says, for your name's sake, O Lord, not for me, not for my merit, part, no, for you, pardon my guilt for it is great. And verse 20, again, O guard my soul and deliver me, let me not be put to shame. Now, our ability to receive the Lord's teaching depends on two things. First, our attitude. And the attitude that you see present in Psalm 25 is primarily one of humility. Humility. Look with me at verse 9. God leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble His way. You see, God guides those who come low before Him. And so David takes the low position. 
David, as it were, humbles himself before the Lord. David is open to the Lord's teaching. He is providing an example of someone who approaches God's Word not looking for what he wants it to say, but what it says. Just the other day, as in two days ago, I ran across an article with this title. Poor interpretation lets us believe the Bible while denying what it actually says. Now, with a title like that, I had to read the article. Again, this humble approach is looking for what God has to say in His Word, not what we want God to say in His Word. But the author of this article says this, and I will quote a couple of paragraphs. He says this, In order to delight and meditate on the law of the Lord, we must understand correctly what Scripture actually says. As people respond to my books, ask questions, and state opinions through emails and social media, I'm struck with how many say they believe the Bible, but their interpretations are so out of line with credible biblical meanings that their profession of confidence in Scripture becomes meaningless and even dangerous. Historically, theological liberals denied Scripture, and everyone knew where they stood. But today, many so-called evangelicals affirm their belief in Scripture while attributing meanings to biblical texts that in fact deny what Scripture really says. Hence, they believe every word of the Bible while actually embracing and teaching beliefs that utterly contradict it. We rightly call upon people to read their Bibles, but it seems many spend much more time reading into the Bible than reading out of it. So nearly everything they read becomes merely an echo of what they already think or what most people around them are already saying. God gave us His Word to teach, rebuke, correct, and train our thinking. 2 Timothy 3.16 Not so we could interpret it away into something that's just a mirror image of our preferred beliefs. And then finally this. So we need to teach people not just to read the Bible, but also how to interpret it so they don't end up being Bible-believing heretics or Jesus followers who follow a Jesus different than the real Jesus of the Bible and history. So our ability to receive the Lord's teaching first depends on humility, our attitude, but it also depends on our action. What do we do? It requires time in His Word. Do we place ourselves or are we placing ourselves in the position to even receive God's teaching? I mean, individually, are you actually reading the Bible? Or does it just sit on the shelf or the coffee table? Are you as families reading the Bible together? Corporate community congregation. My friends, the church is so important because any of us left with a Bible and by ourselves. Now let me qualify that. God if somebody's in solitary confinement in prison and they have a Bible, God can nonetheless give them what they need. But my friends, as you know, we are called not only to faith in Christ, but we are called to one another. And 
right biblical interpretation and application is done in community. Because left to ourselves, we can take any truth of Scripture and go off the rails. Every heresy can be grounded, as it were, in Scripture, in isolation from the historical interpretation of the church through the centuries and from the active community of faith. Oh, how important it is to receive his teaching in the church together and to be folks who, as they're receiving it, are also examining the word just like the Berean Christians did when Paul was preaching. Oh, we study God's Word together. I was reminded of that passage in Colossians chapter 2 where Paul says this, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and those at Laodicea and for all those who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, get this, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What Paul is saying is, if you are not in a position to have your hearts knit together in love by being with God's people, then you are going to not reach a full assurance of the understanding of the knowledge of God's mystery that we see in Christ. What an encouragement to be with God's people. Now looking to the Lord doesn't stop with receiving His teaching. He continues as His teaching is put into practice. And so the third ABC of God's guidance is to obey His Word, to, to take action. The... the um, the, the eyes were open to look up, the ears were open to receive, and now the hands are open and ready, as it were, to get to work. Now, let's bring Jesus into this. Those of you with us in our study of Mark may remember that in chapter 3, people come to Jesus and speak about his brothers and his mother, and they're waiting to see you. And here's Jesus' response for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus says this in his ex explanation of the parable of the soils. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. James, the book of James in the New Testament says this. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being not a hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Now, where is the doing in Psalm 25? Action number one, we see in verse 10. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep His covenant and testimonies. Keep His covenant to lay hold of the forgiveness, forgiveness and guidance that God graciously offers and provides. 
to lay hold of the promises of God as God has bound Himself to His people, that He has called out to be His people. Another action is taking refuge. We see that in verse 20. And a big action we see twice in verses 5 at the, toward the beginning and at the end. I wait. I wait to accept God's time and wisdom. This is really clearly seen in the life of King Saul and the life of King David. King David waited for God's appointed time. King Saul attempted to create, as it were, God's appointed time. It's the differences we see in Isaiah 30. The rebellious Israel was was attempting to, as it were, ride fast horses. And the prophet said, wait and rest in the Lord. Wait. A certain tenseness. The trust is eager, waiting in hope rather than in resignation. How are you guys doing right now with waiting on the Lord? Actively waiting. You know, the book of Hebrews is great. Why? Because it shows us that hall of fame of faith, right? You got to like that, right? Did they receive what they were promised? In many cases, no. Did that distract them, deter them? Absolutely not. They had their eyes fixed on what was promised and what was certainly to come. Now, obedience, back to the GPS. In order to get where you want to go, you've actually got to listen and do what it says. With that in mind, how are we doing? How am I doing? I'm I'm looking to the Lord. I'm receiving His teaching. Am I obeying His word? How are you doing? Look with me at the last few verses. Verses 20 through 22. Psalm 25 does not end on a high note of over-the-top joy as some psalms of lament do when God rescues It ends with the psalmist declaring that he has taken refuge in the Lord. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. And verse 21. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. When I first read that, I said, wow. David's pretty bold here. May my integrity and my uprightness preserve me. Guess what? Those pronouns are not in the text. And I believe what David is saying is may God, may your integrity and may your uprightness preserve me for I wait for you. David is banking not on his integrity, not on his uprightness. He's banking on the character of the Lord. And at the end, redeem Israel, O God, out of all His troubles. In other words, God, do for others what You will do for me. Is that, is that a great way to love your brothers and sisters? God, I don't want a blessing that I can keep to myself. I, I want whatever You're going to give me, Lord, give it to all of us. One body, one spirit. Do it for all of us. Now we've seen 
that one way to organize this acrostic poem of Psalm 25 is to see it as the ABCs of God's guidance. I want us to conclude by circling back briefly to a couple of verses. Verses 12 and 14. Look with me at verse 12. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. Following his path, looking for guidance along the way is not so much do this or do that, but it's fearing the Lord, reverencing the Lord, your life reflecting who you are. In other words, be this kind of person. Think Sermon on the Mount. Think Fruit of the Spirit. And if you are that kind of person, then all the big decisions in life Who do I marry? What job do I take? What house do I buy? What church do I attend? What, you name it, all the big decisions of life that keep us up at night and worried, frantic for counsel. When we are the person who looks to the Lord, who receives his training, who obeys his, receives his teaching, obeys his word, when we are that, when there is love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness and gentleness and self-control in more and more abundance in our lives, when we are that, then all of those decisions seem to work themselves out, don't they? So there's the fear of the Lord, but look with me at verse 14. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him. So it doesn't just stop with fear. The friendship of the Lord is with, or for those who fear Him, and He makes known to them His covenant. Other translations say the secret of the Lord is with them or for those. It's the Hebrew word sowed, which is both counsel as in a number of counselors, but also the counsel itself, both the circle of one's close associates and the matters that are discussed. This is striking in the translation here, the English Standard Version, the friendship of the Lord. Did that catch you by surprise? The friendship of the Lord? And He makes known to them His covenant, You remember each time Abraham doubted God's ability to to, uh, actually fulfill the promises in Genesis 12? What did God do? He appeared to him and renewed the covenant. I will be your God. You will be my people. Friendship and fellowship of the Lord on the path. A commentator years ago said this, the essence of of the road of the righteous is this. It is a road too difficult to walk without the companionship and friendship of God. On the path, the Christian has a companionship and friendship with none other than Jesus Christ because the friendship and fellowship of the Lord is most clearly seen and known in Jesus You and I are not alone on the path. We have a companion with us to the end. Again, from John 15, you are my friends. If you do what I command you, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. 
My friends, as intimate as marriage can be, as intimate as a friendship can be, there is no intimacy greater than a believer in Jesus Christ. The one who is in you and you in him. My friends, this psalm, as all the psalms, point ahead to Jesus. And they say this, look to Jesus receive his teaching and obey his word. It's how we know we love him. And indeed, we love him because he first loved us. My friends, through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, we are redeemed from all of our troubles, the trouble of sin and the ultimate villain of death. For if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. Behold, all things are new in Christ. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for not leaving us to our own devices to find our way home. But you have been pleased to provide the map and the compass We have your word and we have your spirit to get us home. And we thank you, Father, that not only are we not alone on this path because Jesus is walking by his spirit with us, but we are walking with one another. Oh, Father, would you be pleased to enable this church today and always to look to you to receive your teaching and to obey your word. Be pleased, Father, to make your word take up residence in our life and work itself out. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.